and welcome to With Deadly Force. I'm Brett McQueen, co-founder, along with Scott Reitz, of International Tactical Training Seminars. This is the 30th anniversary of our business in what has been an amazing journey for us. We've had the honor and pleasure of working with some fascinating people. We've traveled the world conducting training, learning a great deal about other cultures and attitudes regarding guns, and we've made some wonderful lifelong friends in the process. In the past 30 years, we've been busy. We've worked on TV shows and movies as technical advisors. We've trained a lot of actors and actresses, and we've been on numerous talk shows and news affiliations. We've done lectures and speaking engagements across the globe, given expert witness testimony in federal and superior court in use of force cases, and over the last 30 years, we have trained many thousands of police and civilians. The list goes on and on. So, Scott, why don't you discuss how ITTS has evolved over the last three decades? Oh, gladly. One of the things that I realized right at the outset with my early police training was that it was very stagnant. It was basically qualification only, everything given to you on a silver platter. It's the same course of fire. And I realized that that wasn't sufficient for the demands of the street. So through the last three decades, we have developed a lot of equipment to replicate and more closely mirror the situations that people are confronting out there in the street, not only officers, but civilians, and in some cases, military as well. And that's really where we've come around at this point in time, where we're able to really throw uh, students into a myriad of problem-solving solutions, uh, wherein they're able to apply the mechanics and solve very complex problems. Not at the outset, because you're learning the mechanics, but later on down the road. One of the things I like to mention in court sometimes in depositions is imagine if I trained you to drive a stick-shifted Volkswagen bug, and that's all I trained you to do. And overnight, I ship you across the Atlantic. I put you in the Le Mans 24-hour race in France in a Formula One race car that you've never been in before, and you crash and burn at the very first turn. And is it any wonder due to the fact that what I trained you on was entirely different from what was required in the field? And unfortunately, that's where we are with a lot of training, not only police, but civilian as well. And we pride ourselves in basically adaptive training. And our mainstay philosophy, mainstay philosophy is that gunfighting is nothing more than problem solving and adaptation at speed under extreme duress. And that's where we are today. And I take a lot of pride in ITTS. I take a lot of pride in the friendships that are built, the both men and women from all walks of life that come and train with us. And there's an intense satisfaction, I think both you and I would agree, is when you teach somebody and give somebody a skill that previously they had no idea that they could accomplish or that they even dreamed of being able to possess. And that's intensely rewarding. And that's one of the reasons I still teach to this day, and I know you do. I'm very proud also of the fact that to this day, none of our students have ever had bad shootings, gotten into bad shootings. And I think that's a real feather in your cap um, because you make it so clear about when one can and cannot use deadly force. And I know that a number of police officers that you've trained have gotten into shootings, and they've all been very successful. So, Scott, before moving along, Take a few minutes and tell our listeners about your days in the academy and beyond. After going through the academy and graduating, I was conducting my probation in Wilshire Division, and that was an eye-opener. Coming from an area 
and a background where I'd never come across a bad guy in my life. I had never witnessed violence of any sort in my life. I had never been in a fight in my life. I worked out. I was on the studied karate, won a couple of championships, things like that. But I never saw violence firsthand, up front, close and personal. Wilshire, within two weeks, changed all of that massively. What I'm talking about is my outlook on some of the ways that individuals, humans, interact with one another. And I definitely learned that to be a Los Angeles police officer at that time, when there were approximately, I believe, 3,800 for the entire city, you really had to hold a very thin blue line very strongly. A lot was required of you. And back then, you were armed with nothing more than a 4-inch 38. Uh, you had a 158-grain lead round nose you know, rounds, which were in the cylinder, and another 12 to reload with. That was it, and a straight-stick baton, and that was it. You were set against all the denizens and bad guys of Los Angeles. After that, went to Van Nuys in a wheel. They wheeled you out, uh, and I did patrol for a very brief period of time. I pushed and pushed my captain to send me to DEA school, which is downtown Los Angeles at the World Trade Center in Los Angeles. Conducted that school for two weeks and then was assigned to a hype car with a partner named Ray Lyons, who was a phenomenal uh, narcotics expert. And we worked the hype car for, I think, about a year, year and a half or so. And all we, we were the only two guys for the entire valley, but all we concentrated on were suspects, heroin suspects, and that'll be a fascinating uh, discussion later on down the road. And after that, I ended up going to the special problems unit. There were seven of us in that, and we worked special problems throughout the valley, but mostly in Van Nuys for burglars and rapists and people that normal patrols simply couldn't catch. Throughout all of that, I became aware and was actually in the academy of not only SWAT, but Metropolitan Division. The Metropolitan Division at the time consisted of 240 officers, B platoon, which worked the valley, C platoon, which worked downtown, D platoon, which is SWAT. Later on, they would integrate canine and mounted unit. And it was really the high watermark. If you wanted to be somebody, you worked what we called 114. And the genesis of 114 was when, in the 1930s, when Metropolitan Division was actually created, uh, it was at the old Georgia Street station down where the Staples Center is today, and the door number for Metropolitan Division was 114. They actually have it on display at the new Metropolitan Division headquarters. So everybody had T-shirts that said 114, and you always said, well, what does that mean? Well, it was Metro, and at the time we did bank stakeouts. We did high-risk service warrants, high-risk crime suppression. Uh, we did witness protection, anything of an unusual nature which the department was ill-equipped at the time to handle, it went to Metro. And if you were a cop and you really wanted to earn your bones and you wanted to be somebody, you went to Metro. It was plain and simple. And I took the P3 test, passed that, Hollywood High, and next thing I know was in Metro. Worked B platoon for a while, and it wasn't too long after that that I gained admittance into SWAT, which is D-team. And... During that period of time, not only did I teach all over the world, but Brett and I had established ITTS, International Tactical Training Seminars. But in addition to that, 
I started working as a deadly force and police practices expert, which I call SME, subject matter expert, in both federal and superior court. And that was an entire paradigm shift in how I had to testify and understand the law. As an expert, it's completely different than if you're on the stand testifying as an officer. In reflection, in my 43 years behind the gun, I've actually come full circle, 360 degrees. First, I had to learn about deadly force and all the mechanics, which are necessitated. And I had to practice for many, many years. Ultimately, I ended up applying it on a number of occasions. Of course, then instructing in the application of deadly force as well. And finally, defending deadly force. So for myself, it's been an incredible journey, which has spanned over 43 years. And to present, we have literally trained in a number of countries throughout Europe. We've had groups uh, of other countries and tactical teams come over and train with us here in Los Angeles. Both Brett and I co-wrote a book called The Art of Modern Gunfighting, which is volume one of three volumes. And to present, we still continue. I still continue to teach classes, and Brett still continues to teach classes, and that is where we are at this present moment. And Brett, I'd like you to introduce yourself, and before you do, you were sort of a pioneer, very much a pioneer, if you will, among females training in not only fires, but tactics. And a lot of the classes which you attended, you were the singular female, and this is working with classes which were teaching military and SWAT team members and police and civilians that have been in the game for quite some time. So if you would talk about your background and how you came into this, I think it would be absolutely fascinating for our listeners. Thanks, Scott. Um, I was raised in the Midwest, and I had a lifelong desire to get into UCLA. Um, I visited my grandparents in the winter, and the first time I ever saw the UCLA campus, I was 12 years old, I fell in love with it. And I said, this is where I want to be. So I worked hard and studied hard, and I did attend UCLA with a degree in political science. Um, from there, I decided that I was going to go into business and went on to uh, to get an MBA. Um, after that, I did a number of different things. I had a couple different businesses that were totally unrelated to firearms. Um, to be perfectly honest, when I was growing up, I was never, ever exposed to firearms of any type. I was very fearful of them, completely uninformed, um, and probably misinformed as well. So I was, I was afraid of guns, essentially. That, that's really the bottom line. Um, when I felt the need to actually learn how to shoot, it was the result of having two burglaries at my home. Um, we were remodeling and there were a couple of break-ins, which really terrified me. I had two very young children at the time and I was really concerned for their safety and for mine. Um, there were also follow homes in the neighborhood. That's, you know, for another time uh, to talking about that, but that, that was going on. Essentially, these guys were following, um, in groups of four and sometimes larger groups, following people home from different venues. And they would literally come into their driveway and into their garage and then beat people up and rape women and those kinds of things. So I was scared to death, essentially. And, at that point, I met Scott, and I wanted to learn how to shoot. I, I felt I needed to defend myself and my children and protect ourselves. So I was really fortunate to learn um, how to shoot properly and also to train with some of the best instructors out there. 
Some of the instructors that I trained with were people like Colonel Jeff Cooper of Gunsight, Louis Arbuck, Clint Smith, Larry Mudgett, and of course, Scott Reitz, the very best. I learned a couple of things, one of which was teaching women and, and women learning how to shoot is quite different than men learning how to shoot. So in many cases, a lot of the classes that I attended, despite the fact that I had wonderful instructors, I felt at a severe, a serious disadvantage being a woman and perhaps not learning in quite the same way as, as some of my male counterparts. So Scott approached me and asked if I was interested in working with some women in law enforcement. I really jumped at the chance to be involved in that. I always felt that there was room for improvement, not just for women, but for everyone. And it sort of just evolved into ITTS. And that was about 30 years ago, and we've been going strong ever since. For the last 30 years, we've trained thousands of individuals, both law enforcement and civilians, in the safe and effective use of firearms. And with all the training that I'd done over the years, the emphasis was always on marksmanship and manipulation, but there was really very little on decision-making, which is really an integral part of owning a firearm. So when we started the courses in the Handgun One lecture that I teach, we discussed not only the application of use of deadly force, but also when and when not to use deadly force. So I think that most gun owner owners don't know the difference between when they can and can't use deadly force. And we try to make that absolutely crystal clear to our students. Let's talk about what we will cover in this podcast because it's significant. Uh, we'll conduct interview-based discussions and engage in dynamic conversations with a variety of law enforcement, firearms, and legal experts to reveal the considerations and the complexities that are a result of a deadly force encounter. We'll also talk about firearms training, shootings that have occurred, and the legal matters that follow in order to provide our listeners with a comprehensive look into a topic that's often misunderstood. We'll also discuss a broader spectrum of topics related to firearms, like law enforcement, civilian training, and everything related to gun ownership, and of course, the use of deadly force. Because of Scott's unique access to some of the world's leading experts in related fields, we are able to bring in guests that are not readily available to the general public. Scott, you want to talk about some of the guests that we're going to interview? Oh, absolutely. Um, I have access to a lot of different units, groups, individuals who have real-world experience, not make-believe or anything else. And I think it's really important and valuable for the listeners to understand what it is that actually occurs out there in the real world. So we will be talking to former and current LAPD SWAT officers. That was one of the first, it was the first SWAT unit in the world, uh, established over 50 years ago. Many of our current instructors are current members of LAPD SWAT. We'll be working and talking with some of the different specialized units, one of them being the Specialized Investigative Service, which is Surveillance SIS, very famed institution, very famed unit on LAPD. We'll be talking with police psychologists in the aftermath, psychological, physiological uh, traumas that may or may not occur with certain officers under certain situations. We're going to talk to some officers who have been involved in some very interesting shootings, some fascinating shootings. Uh, these are officers that I trained, and we'll have one-on-one -on -one discussions with them and what they learned and how their training pushed them through to ultimately prevail in incredibly intense and dynamic situations. 
we'll talk to the FID, Force Investigative Division detectives. Uh, these are individuals who investigate shootings. Most people don't understand the depth to which a shooting is investigated. All the empirical data and facts and evidence that go in to this. And it's just absolutely eye-watering when you start listening to that. And backgrounds and witness statements and trajectories and uh, gunshot residue tests and all the different types of tests that are out there. Blood spray pattern analysis just goes on and on. Uh, one of the things that I think, and Brett, you know, you brought this up, was how are officers today hired as versus when I came on? You know, in other words, what kind of standards? How has it changed? I think that would be an absolutely fascinating aspect because there are a lot of individuals out there who are prospective police officers and want to know, should I go into law enforcement? What are they looking for if I want to go in? What kind of in, you know questions are going to be asked in any of you? Um, how am I supposed to present myself? We had that discussion the other night with a young man. There's also a number of other issues that I would like to talk about too, not just about use of force, but just other things that affect all of us. Um, some of them just Los Angeles and, and then of course other cities as well. Um, one of the things that comes up often in discussions with students and even with friends is the homeless crisis. And this has certainly affected all of us in the city of Los Angeles. Um, it's the proliferation of, of the homeless on the streets has been a real problem for many people. And I'd like to talk to some of the police officers, some of the people involved in this. Um, how is this issue affecting the police departments? What is their procedure protocol for dealing with homeless people, and what are some of the dangers and some of the issues they've had um, in dealing with them? Also, another issue is people who prosecute dangerous felons. We've got a number of district attorneys who have taken our classes, and be interesting to talk with them about the challenges and the personal threats to their own safety. I know that that's many of them have been threatened in in many different ways, and that's of concern to them. Also, I'd like to revisit the LA riots. I remember those very well, and talk to some of the officers and some of the command people who are closely involved in the decision making and implementing of the police task force in in dealing with the riots. What I'd like to do is I'd like to conclude with some of the lessons that I've learned in 43 years behind the gun. One of the things that really stands out to me is that the individual, and this is having studied literally thousands of gunfights, who maintains his composure, executes very clean mechanics, and basically does not lose his head, disallows a suspect from forcing him into making mistakes, will generally be the one who prevails in a lethal force encounter. So it's not about being fast or quick. It is about decision-making, but it's also about maintaining your composure more than anything else. Another very interesting takeaway through the years is the ability to adapt. If all you learn are rudimentary skills and you run through a feel-good course of fire where everything is set up so you can't possibly fail, you're not really learning anything. You just be repetitive rounds, multiple rounds into the same target from the same distance in the same drill. You're really not learning much of anything other than shooting a lot of ammo over a period of time into the same target. What we do is we change up about every one or two relays, just constantly changing, constantly adaptive, and it forces the student at various levels of skill to respond in a different manner, to think outside the box. So the adaptive skill process is absolutely imperative 
to prevailing because nobody with any degree of accuracy can possibly tell you what it is that you're going to be confronted with. Nobody with any degree of accuracy can possibly tell you what is going to be given to you or taken from you in a lethal force encounter. And most probably, the most important thing that I've learned through the years is applying common sense. There's a, there are a lot of techniques out there now. There's a lot of spin and marketing, smoke and mirrors. And what we look at is what works. We do try things. We have an open mind. I look at things. I examine them, but I want to know if you're going to give me a technique or if you're going to espouse a certain philosophy, what's the practicality behind it? What is your personal experience behind it? How do you know this is going to work? Has it been worked in a repetitive basis in documented shootings? And that's one of the things that we do. I don't know how many hundreds of people I've trained over the years have been involved in gunfights, but it's significant. And one of the things I've always made a point of is asking individuals, did the training help you? Did it assist you? Was it something that immediately came to the forefront? The type of training you received through us or the type of training you received in Metro to allow you to prevail. We're actually going to talk to some of the officers that I trained that were in some very, very uh, highly critical shootings. And that's what we continue to this day in ITTS is to train well outside the box. So when you're coming out, are you enjoying yourself? Yes. Are you learning stuff? Yes. But more importantly, are you learning how to adapt? Are you learning about deadly force, about the imperativeness of understanding when you can and cannot apply it? And the critical nature of deadly force because it's not Hollywood. We're talking about the real world. We're talking about real consequences. And Brett, do you have any closing thoughts? Yeah, I do actually. Um, you know, it's interesting what you're, what you're talking about. And of course you have years and years of real world experience. It's always struck me as being really odd that it doesn't really require very much for people to put a shingle up and call themselves a firearms instructor. And unfortunately, I think, think that in some cases this has given you know the industry a bad name um, just simply because there's a, so much as I talked about earlier with my own life there was so much inf misinformation out there that I was very confused as when I first started training as to what was appropriate and what was not um, not just in tactics and manipulation but also in terms of use of force and I, I think that Maybe that could be the reason for so many out-of-policy shootings and maybe some firearms-related accidents with civilians. So I think that's something that I would really like to delve into into in the future in terms of some of the people that we have as guests and also between you and I having a really open discussion about that. We, we would really like to make this for all of you. So with all that said, we'd like to hear from you, our listeners. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram. Go to our website, internationaltactical.com. Or send us your questions, inquiries, and feedback to podcast at withdeadlyforce.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>